Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,261 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I've delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 15th of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Sign, Sealed, Delivered, in Blood. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. I appreciate you being here today. As we continue our series through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Now last week we explored the reformation of the conscience and we found that it is only through the new covenant in the heavenly tabernacle that our body and soul is allowed access to God through our perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. This week we're going to learn that to have hope in a future reward and peace and joy in this present world, that we must embrace and embody the truth that we can escape the judgment, tomorrow's judgment, if and because today's sin is forgivable. And our passage today is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. It's on page 1872 of your pew Bibles. Follow along as I read. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of internal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from their sins committed under that first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why the first covenant was not put in effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, This blood is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter the sanctuary made by human hands, but was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way that the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Other Christ, otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with the sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as the people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin of many, and he appeared a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And I'd ask you to look at your bulletin insert today, the sign with a picture on it. It says, sign, sealed, delivered in blood. Picture yourself at the bottom of this crevasse, back in that dark place in the picture. And let me paint a picture of this situation. All humanity has fallen into a deep, dark crevice from which it is impossible to climb out. The fissure is marked with sin and death, 
and brought us nothing but guilt and despair from Adam onward. Though many have tried to clamor back out of this to the light, are useless human means such as man-made religions, personal piety, and moral philosophies, none of these have succeeded. Now others have tried to cope with their, their guilt and their fallen condition by igniting their own dismal little light like it had a weak flashlight back in that cave, trying to light that darkness. They may do so believing that this crevasse isn't so dark and deep, or that humanity is rising from the depths of this pit by natural progression that will one day emerge into that bright light, or that all this talk about sin and death and fallenness is just a mere fantasy. But this crevasse remains. All people know intuitively that our current condition is what it should be. We know deep down that we are meant for something better, something more than this dark pit that we originally found ourselves in, that something is missing or something was lost. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, and I have that scripture below the picture there, this is what the scripture means when it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, amid this fallen condition, as we're in that bottom of that pit, came the law. This was a law that was signed, sealed, delivered by Moses. And it was confirmed by a long line of Old Testament prophets. God gave it to Moses and the people of Israel, and it clearly points out that you are in this dark, deep crevasse, our sinful condition, our guilty condition. It describes the high elevation for which we plummeted from the top. It creates a sense of helplessness and despair, a need for someone to lift us out of this crevasse that we find ourselves in. But the law doesn't provide a permanent solution for escaping this pit that we find ourselves in. No, no set of rules, no set of regulations can ever accomplish this. The very best that the law can do is to remind us that we are in this deep pit. To point us, though, to a greater hope as the bright light indicates shining down in this crevasse. It may offer a temporary solution the law through the animal sacrifices that were repeated over and over, but it left them in the confines of darkness. Now Hebrews chapter 9 tells us what we need in order to save us from this pit, this sin and guilt. What we need is the blood of Christ. With the coming of that long-awaited Messiah, the means of eternal salvation was finally revealed. It was that bright light that shone upon us to reveal what was actually needed to bring us out of that pit of darkness. Not to condemn us in our unholy condition, but to rescue it, us from it. Jesus Christ took on the entire human nature but he did it without sin so that he could shed his blood and die in our place once for all as a sacrifice for us. 
This ushered in a new arrangement or a new covenant, as we call it, between God and humanity. This new covenant was far superior to that old covenant with its rituals, with its conditions, with its sacrifices, with its commands, that the law could not lift us out of this fallen condition that we found ourselves in and raise us into that great light of salvation. The new covenant mediated by Jesus Christ was signed, sealed, and delivered in blood. And not just any blood, but the blood of a spotless Lamb of God who is able to take away the sin of the world as that last great prophet John the Baptizer declared when he saw Christ coming toward him. Now the remainder of Hebrews chapter 9, the author focuses on this theme of blood, using it to contrast the old and the new covenants, demonstrating once again that Christ is our superior high priest as we've been going over these past few weeks. Now in verses 15 through 22, the author describes a critical function of the sacrifice under the old covenant because it was only a shadow or a type of that new covenant. It was foreshadowing what would one day save us completely. And then in it, verses 23 through 28, he emphasizes the vital role of Christ's sacrifice that fulfilled that old covenant type that was unable in itself to take care of our sin. Now, last week, we looked at chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, and the author of Hebrews introduced a strong contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. As in the old covenant, blood still played a, a vital role, a crucial role, a central role to that as it does in the new covenant. It was a vivid symbol of that sacrificial death. But none of the blood sacrifices of the goats and bulls could redeem eternally. But only the blood of Christ, as verse 14 said, he offered himself unblemished to God to cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death. And you might ask, what kind of acts that lead to death? Indeed, the works characterized by those who are spiritually dead, who have no purpose or use for God in their lives, because of the un they don't have the energizing work of the Spirit within them. But it also is against those works of righteousness that can never bring a healthy spiritual life, those rituals, those regulations, the rule of the Old Testament covenant that can never bring eternal life. Because we only have life through one, and that's through Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 15, the author establishes the overarching theme for the rest of chapter 9. Christ is a mediator of that new covenant. His death paid for our sins that could be, not be paid for under the old covenant arrangements, thus enabling us to partake in that new covenant and inherit eternal life. Now, utilizing the form of the argument that was common to Jewish interpreters at this time, during the first century, the author develops an argument based on two different meanings for the Greek word of covenant. Now, the first one we looked at a couple of weeks ago about the different types of covenants that was listed in the Old Testament. But today, it's in a legal sense, in a last will and testament. As in today's, a person's last will, so it was in the first century. As long as a person who executed that will was still alive, the stipulations of that will could never go into effect. 
and their heirs would not receive their inheritance. And the same illustration applies to this first covenant, though in a way it demonstrated how inferior it was to the second covenant, the new covenant. The author notes that even this first arrangement, though, in verse 18, was not put in effect without blood. However, it was not the blood of that God-man, the creator himself, the redeemer, the heir of all things. Instead, the old covenant was instituted by deaths of calves and goats. The blood was sprinkled on the physical copy of the covenants and the people, but it was just a sign of their obligation to keep the law under the penalty of death, as described in Exodus chapter 24. Not only were the people sprinkled by this blood in the Old Covenant, but also was a tabernacle sprinkled in the implements of worship in Hebrews 9.21. Now, there was no biblical record in the Old Testament of Moses literally sprinkling the tabernacle and its implements with blood. But the first century historian Josephus relays a similar idea of tradition. And he writes, And when Moses had sprinkled Aaron's vestments himself and his sons with the blood of the beasts that were killed, and had purified them with the springs of water and the ointment, they became God's priest. He did the same with the tabernacle and its vessels with perfumed oil, and as I said, with the blood of bulls and rams. And it might have been this oral tradition that the author of Hebrews used in this passage, or maybe he used the term for sprinkling in a less direct sense, referring instead to the fact that the vestments and the implements of worship and the tabernacle would have inevitably been splattered with blood as the sacrifices were taking place during their order of worship. Any reader of the Old Testament would readily agree with the author's conclusion, though, in verse 22, and let me read it out of the New Living Translation. According to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, blood is an essential for ritual cleaning and for setting something apart for worship. And that's what being holy means, is to be set apart by God for his service. And we as believers have been set apart our vocation is to build the kingdom of God. Regardless of what we do for a living or regardless of what we do on a daily basis, our vocation is to be set aside to build God's kingdom, to be holy before God. Blood was essential. It was a ritual cleaning and a setting something aside for worship. The principle was the necessity of the blood of the atonement was summed up in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, which likely undergirds what the author's theology of Old Testament sacrifices were. Let me read Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. In its blood, given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Now, if you look on the other side of your bulletin insert today, I'm not going to go over the application right away, but let's look at these points underneath that. The first two critical points of theology rest in verse 22. First, the sin is shown to be a terrible offense. In today's society, as it's been since the beginning of time, we like to think of it as missteps or an indiscretion or maybe a lapse of judgment that we have. But sin is a heinous transgression against the holy God 
who deserves our absolute obedience. And the second point of theology is the atonement for sin is costly. God doesn't wink at our sin. To do so would be to compromise his perfect holy character. When we commit an offense against God, he doesn't simply shake his head and say, oh, well, the heir is human. Because sin is a horrible offense against the holy God. And because of that, atonement for sin is costly. The costliest thing in all of God's creation is life. And the animal's life is in the blood, as I read in Leviticus 17.11. Therefore, it's necessary to follow that in verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. As we move on to verses 23 through 28, the old covenant sacrificial system, which seemingly is an endless train of animal sacrifices with a constant flowing river of blood, that couldn't be good news of the perfect redemption that God had for its people and that they had longed for for so long. The value of earthly sacrifices lay in the portrayals of it was a picture of the ultimate sacrifice. In verse 23, they pointed beyond themselves as sheep and calves and goats. That sacrifice pointed beyond what they represented to that heavenly sacrifice which they pictured. The author of Hebrews presents, or presents three strong contrasts in verses 24 through 26. And these are also listed in your bulletin insert. The first contrast is that Christ didn't enter a holy place made with hands, but rather he entered heaven itself. In verse 24, this underscores the fact that the earthly tabernacle was an old covenant copy of an anticipation of a new covenant reality and its fulfillment when Christ stepped into heaven and sacrificed himself. Second, the contrast is Christ didn't offer sacrifices repeatedly as did the high priest. He sacrificed himself once for all. In verse 25, this atoning sacrifice of God's son was so powerful and effective that it paid for all sin, our past sin, our present sin, and our future sin, it's all paid for. It's gone because of the sacrifice and the, the was paid by Christ. The writer of Hebrews implies that this when he notes that if Christ's single death had not been sufficient, in verse 26, it would says otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. However, because his power extends along every point in the timeline, from the very beginning of creation when God created the world, he knew what the end result would be, that his son would sacrifice for the world, for the sins of the world. The third comparison is that Christ's death was qualitatively different from the sacrifices of that old covenant which had to be repeated because of the stain of sin that remained and required continual cleansing. And while the old system might have been covering our sins for a time, the blood of Christ did away with our sins. Now, the Greek, Greek word here to do away with is antithesis, which is a legal term, and it means a nullification. And for something to be nullified, that means it never occurred. So Christ's sacrifice for us means that our sins 
before God never occurred. Otherwise, we could never approach the holy throne of God. And not only can we approach it, but we can approach it boldly, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Another essential word in this section is hapax, meaning once. And it's used in verse 26 and verse 28 concerning Christ's atoning work. The word emphasizes the fact that Christ is not sacrificed over and over and over again as the lamb and the goats and the calves had to be. Verse 26 says, but he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then it goes on in verse 28. It says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin of many. And that word translated many can also be translated all. His sin covers all if we accept it. Hebrew 9 concludes with the word of warning for those who shrug off that superiority of Christ in this person and his work and its implication of that finality that's found in the new covenant. Verse 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. The implicit warning is leveling, leveled for those who might foolishly put off their decision to accept Christ as their savior or to ignore the gospel and indulge in pleasures of this world. The author ends the chapter with a word of encouragement and hope for all who believe in Christ. Now I'll point to that graphic on your bulletin insert, Hebrews 9, 28. He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting for him. In the same vein, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, we are looking forward for the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. If we've accepted Christ, we don't need to worry about that judgment. It does not come to us. But for those who have chosen, willfully chosen to reject Christ, in our application today of this passage, Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28, can be summed up in this. We need to stop, think, and be wary, for tomorrow we die. Now that in and of itself sounds pretty depressing. Because a modern hedonistic philosophy could be summed up in this motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's also found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. And it would be translated in our everyday vernacular as YOLO. You only live once, so live it up. The ancient Epicurean version of this philosophy, though, emphasized a mental and emotional pleasure, especially freedom from the fear of death, which is not unlike our modern psychological approach to life that tries to secure serenity within human means. And we cannot gain that peace with God through our own human means. The philosophy of Hebrews is just the opposite of that. That is, it stems from the vantage point the human means stem from the vantage point of Hollywood or the glistening high-rise of the Fifth Avenue in New York or the ivory tower of study overlooking the University of Cambridge. Whether our belief is system-driven by physical indulgence, intelligent progress, or psychological health, the book of Hebrews confronts us with a stark reality and a stern warning that we need to stop, think, and be wary for tomorrow we die. 
The Bible looks at life, but it also looks at the afterlife from a completely different angle than those who don't know Christ do. As Solomon discovered, and he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, there's more to life than food and drink. There's more to death than the grave, because beyond the grave, there is God. He is our creator, and he's our judge. The real root of the human problem is not found in our physical or psychological, but in our spiritual. The problem is sin, with the prospect of judgment if we don't allow Christ to take care of that sin for us. Hebrews teaches us that our sin problem can only be solved through one thing, and that's forgiveness. And this leads me to the vital truth to address the desperate human situation. Understanding this truth and embracing it and letting it transform our thinking and our lives can fix us and lift us out of that despair, that crevasse, into that glorious light to minister a spiritual serenity that so desperately is needed in our world today. The truth is simple, but insightful. Tomorrow's judgment is escapable because today's sin is forgivable. We don't have to face judgment because Christ has forgiven our sins. All we, he asks of us is to put our trust in him. The modern day hedonists had part of their statement right. The truth that they proclaimed, one day we will die. But Hebrews reminds us that after that, we face the judgment in Hebrews 27. And just as no one can escape the reality of death, no matter whether we're two or 200, at some point, will die unless Christ comes before. Nobody can escape that day when we must face God. However, we can't escape the judgment, the eternal judgment that comes as a just penalty for our sin against the holy God. The weight of sin that causes us to fall farther and farther into that crevasse that would seem like it's helpless to pick ourselves out of because it is. We cannot pick ourselves out, but Christ can reach down. He can become one of us as he did and lift us out of that crevasse into that glorious light where we don't face judgment because our sins are nullified. God looks at us and he says, I don't see a sin, but he sees us through what Jesus Christ did for us. Those who have handed over that weight of sin to their Savior must face or haven't handed over that sin to their Savior must face that judgment alone. They're down in that dark crevasse, in the darkness, wandering. How can I get out of this? There's only one way out, and that's through the blood of Christ. Their tomorrow is bleak, for they have no sure foundation for a hope-filled life of today. However, those of us who've been freed from that sin and that guilt can have a reason to rejoice. We can look for the eagerness of that great homecoming when Christ returns or he takes us home prior to returning, when Christ himself will bring salvation and not judgment for those who have accepted him as their savior and receive his forgiveness of sin. Let me point to that graphic once again. 
He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Are we waiting for him? Are we eagerly waiting for him? The more essential, or the more earnestly we embrace and embody that truth that I mentioned, for tomorrow's judgment is escapable because today's sin is forgivable, the more that we'll be motivated to conform our lives to his holy character. And as we do, we will not only harvest the fruits of righteousness, a bright living, and we'll have a hope of a future reward in eternity with Christ in that new global Eden, but also we can have peace and joy today in this present world, no matter how much conflict there is around us. We'd all do well to turn off the TV, which is newscast and the social media feeds that feeds us so much negativity, and look around. There's revivals going on all around the world. There's revivals going on in our country. We need to rejoice for what Christ is bringing us each day. It's all because of this new covenant. And that new covenant was signed, sealed, and delivered in blood. Now next week we'll continue our adventure through the book of Hebrews as we focus on the great benefits for believers. In a message titled, One for All, Once for All, Free for All. So I'd encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the illustration from this chapter in Hebrews today, how the old covenant was not sufficient with its continual sacrifices, but the new covenant as Jesus Christ stepped into the heavenly tabernacle and sacrificed himself once for all for the sins of the entire world and all we need to do is accept it. We thank you for this blessing. We thank you for your indwelling Holy Spirit within us. We thank you for your love to us every day. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you for this. And as we come before you today, during our communion, help us to remember the price that was paid that we might have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek Podcast and Journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.